Might have to rethink this whole marriage thing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, I hope you're having a wonderful morning and that our worship to God has been pleasing to him and that it's coming from your heart as we worship him. Uh, one of the things that one of our elders came up, it was Don that asked me, he said, Mitch, you mentioned this morning about the letters that, um, well, not the letters, but the prayer request that the men in the N, not M, but N pod, um, have requested. And I'm not sure if Ted mentioned, but we have 20 men that sign up for this particular course. And there's a possibility that more will sign up. There's a possibility some will drop out. Um, in fact, very interestingly enough, when we started our class, one of the things that we mentioned to the men is that by law, we have this course, this class that we're taking, and it's for everyone. And that includes atheists. It includes satanic cult worshipers. It includes Muslims. And we went down the list. And after the whole class was done and, and the discussions were wonderful in the, the Bible study that we had, one of the men came up to me. His name is Abdul Rahim. And he said, Mitch, I just want to personally thank you for allowing me, a Muslim, in this class and to feel welcomed to be in this class. I was shocked at the way I was treated. And if I ever get released, it would be an honor to come and worship with you. You don't know what's in the hearts of these men, but it's encouraging to hear that. Regardless of what may be underlying, whether it was pure or not pure, that's not for me to judge. I don't know. I can only take with the, the surface level that it was given to me as to be genuine. But it was very, very encouraging. Here are some of the requests that Don wanted me to, to share with you. I'm going to read some of them before we go to the sermon itself because Don was thinking, as some of you have already taken some of these sheets that are in the foyer up against the wall, then maybe if I read some of these requests, that it would help you to be mindful in your prayers for these men or maybe even to get one of these sheets and even write to them, which I have directions on how you can write to them so that it gets to them. That said, Jeffrey Bearfield wrote, please pray for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding of my purpose that God has for my life. And Tony Buchanan simply said, please pray for my family and help me with my anger. Joshua Turner wrote, pray for my family and my friends and please pray over me and let the Lord touch the judge and the district attorney's heart to give me another chance. Ronald McCullum wrote, pray for my fiance and my family and my upcoming sentence hearing that I get the least amount of time possible and that it, is, um, that it runs concurrently so that the time spent in the uh, jail is used um, for his sentencing. And pray that God forgive me for my sins, as well as those who have sinned against me. And I pray for you all. Tyquez Ursary says, I just want to ask, uh, you all to ask God to keep his angel of protection around me, my family, and loved ones. I just ask that God keeps me humble and grounded. Marvin Summers wrote, for God to give me strength and courage to change my ways. I want him to forgive me of all my sins and my wrongdoing. Kevin Newsom wrote, 
pray for my wife and children. Pray that the Lord's will be done in my life, in my case, in my relationship with him. And also, I need prayer for my study dedication with his word. There are 14 prayer requests. I read a few of them. And again, I just want to share these with you because these men, they're, they're wanting our prayers. And you talk about, you know, what can we pray for? Very specifically, here's what we can be praying for. So I share that with you. So one of the things that when this parable was being read, or as it was being read by Eric, but as Jesus is teaching this parable in, in uh, Matthew chapter 19, I want to reread verse 12 and start the sermon from this vantage point because I think it very important. It says here in Matthew chapter 19, I don't know why I'm, I'm in the wrong, wrong place. Matthew 19, here we go. Oh, it's because he was in Matthew 20. That's the reason why. Okay. <laughs> Matthew 20, verse 12. That's what I wanted to read. There are those that were grumbling, right? The ones that had borne the, the, the whole day's worth of work and only got the same amount as those who had worked just one hour. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So this landowner in this parable gives a denarii to those who worked all day long from mornings or on 6 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock at night. They bore through the, the heat of the day, and they got exactly what they agreed to, a day's worth of work. That's what they got paid. And they were fine with that. That's why they agreed to it, because that's common, right? No matter, and I was mentioning this to Eric, so Eric, I'm glad you're still here for the sermon. You, can, you work whether you are a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, whether you are a janitor, whatever it was, you got a day's wage of pay. There was not like you're a lawyer, so you get more money than than this other person here necessarily. It was typically you worked a day, you got a day's worth of wages. So that seemed fair. I know it's different than our society now. We, our sense of fairness depends on whatever degree you get or whatever is in demand, like if you're in the NBA, things like that where you get more money or less money, right? So everything was fair as far as they're concerned. The problem was, in their minds, it was not fair that someone who worked one hour got 12 times as much money relative to the one who worked one, or 12 hours. So 12 hour, work 12 hours, get one day of wages. Work one hour, get one day's of wages. Doesn't seem fair. And many of us can relate to that because what we want, at least if we're not thinking through things all the way to its end, what we think we want is justice and fairness. In fact, we spoke about that in our Bible study this morning, right? As that was condemnation for the surrounding nations, as well as for the people of Israel, whom the prophet had been condemning. Well, that's it. We want that fairness. So here's what Jesus is getting at. And we're going to focus on this toward the last of the sermon before we actually deal with that point. Look at that concept of fairness, right? This is in light of the question, right? In the gospel account of Matthew's account, he says, good, or no, teacher, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? 
That was the rich young ruler's question. When you go to Mark and Luke's account, he says, good teacher, what must I do to, in, to inherit or to obtain eternal life? Well, who doesn't want eternal life? <laughs> and when it comes to eternal life, there's a lot of people that have in their mind their own, if I can use this word, theology, their own view of what makes it right for a person to go to heaven. Some people have a view that is fair in their mindset that says, well, I've done all these things, so therefore, I'm good enough. There's a lot of teachings in the name of Jesus Christ that back up that mindset. That's a mindset that, that's there. And then there's this mindset that says, well, you know, I know it's by grace that we are saved, um, but... I don't think that those people that, that Mitch and that Ted and that Phil were talking about, I don't think salvation is for them because they really did horrific stuff. And my sins aren't anywhere near as bad as theirs. And I, I think that's fair. And there are many that have that view in the name of Christianity as well. right? So we have these different views of what is fair with regard to eternal life. Well... What's interesting about this is uh, just over the years, I find myself more and more talking about that subject matter of eternal life throughout the week, right? Whether it's someone at the gym that I do jujitsu with, or if it's going to be someone uh, just in town, wherever we're, we're talking, or it's family members or friends that come to our house. Maybe it's Eric on a Saturday night. I don't know what it is, but we talk about these subject matters frequently enough. And so I find myself also comparing my current walk with God, my past walk with God, with these teachings of Jesus. And I've seen changes in me from, the, from 20 years ago as a young Christian, and it's been 30 years now that I'm in Christ, right? And I look back and I can see the growth, and from my perspective at least, growth in my walk with him. And what I thought was fair what I thought was just 20 years ago, 30, uh, 25 years ago, I look as, well, maybe according to the ways of the world. And even my view of Christianity from a worldly perspective, yeah, seems just. And I look back, now I'm going, I would never teach what I taught about this concept of eternal life 25 years ago from the pulpit. And so I, I see myself doing that, and so I find myself in these discussions talking to others about eternal life in this regard. But what's interesting about this conversation is the words of the rich young ruler that he says, good teacher, what do I need to do to obtain? Like, do I give you $1,000? Maybe it's 100000 Maybe if I'm good enough? Whatever the situation is, what can I do that I earn this? At least that's the picture I get when he uses the word to obtain. Well, that said, let's look at the storyline in light of this discussion because that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 19 and Matthew 20, right? It leads up from the little children that he's talking about, not to offend those little children, to this discussion that is had with Jesus and this young rich ruler. And it goes from there to his own disciples asking questions along the, live, uh, along the lines of then, who can be saved if this is what you're teaching? So let's go through that. Let's see what 
Jesus actually wants us to learn from this. So when we look at the subject of eternal life, go back to Matthew 19 and look at what he says in verse 16 following. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have, this is ESV, or to obtain, New King James, eternal life? And he says, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. Now, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus replied saying, you, sh you don't murder. You shall, commit, uh, shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness and honor your father and mother. And oh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He basically sums up those quote unquote, some of those 10 commandments about loving your neighbors, right? By not committing adultery or murder or stealing or cheating, whatever those things are, and then sums it up. Love your neighbor. The young man said to him in verse 20, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? It's as if this young man is justifying himself, but I could definitely see if his intentions are pure, you know, is that it? Because that's what I'm doing. Sounds like I'm making a good case for myself that I would have obtain, uh, obtained eternal life. Jesus knew the young rich ruler's God, the God of money, the God that stood between him and his God. And so Jesus responds to him when he says, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And the God that he ultimately served was not the one that would give him eternal life. Eternal life is, in fact, as we can read through all of this, about keeping the commandments. Now, if you notice, it's not just simply about keeping commandments. It's what eternal life was meant to be about. Right? The whole idea of living in this world was to be made in the image of God and reflect that image. Just as Ted was mentioning um, how the moon reflects the source of light the sun, in the same way we reflect the image of God. We're God-bearing imagers, if I can use it that way, on this earth. And so we reflect his love, we reflect his sense of, of love and mercy and justice and everything that we can talk about so that we would be nice to our neighbor who's married and not take his wife or not take his things, his possessions, right? And that we would, in fact, as we're growing up, honor our parents, whether we're young or old, we would do all these things. That's the way we're supposed to be living. This guy knew that commandment keeping he had. I mean, if you want to get technical, I don't, I've never murdered anyone. And if you wanted to ask my mom, even though I know I did bad things growing up, she would tell you, oh, my son is so well-behaved. She would. You know, it's, I think 
the tinted glasses that she still has on. And no matter, I tell mom, I said, all the bad stuff I did. And I would, I would confess all my sins to her of things that I've done after having become a Christian. Some of which would shock her, but then she was like, well, okay, you were young. And you were, she would just, but you're such a good boy. That's the way my mom looks at me, right? Well, I could say from that vantage point, I've done all these things that, you know, from her, she says I'm honoring her, honoring her father and mother. And, and so technically, you know, I didn't do any of these things, so should I be qualified for heaven? And it's easy to justify how we view eternal life and how we can enter that quote-unquote pearly gates from that vantage point of that self-justification but the thing is, just as this young rich ruler had something that stood between him and his God, whatever his sin was, whatever his idol or his God was, it was not Yahweh, it was not Jehovah, it was not who we call God. And that's the problem for many of us. We have our own idols, our own small gods, if you will, that stand between us and the one who can offer us the salvation, right? But notice what these may be for us. And therein lies the, the question that we would want to ask. Just as that rich young ruler or that young man asked of Jesus, we would ask, you know, who can obtain salvation? Because if you go back through the rest of the teachings, remember, there were very, um, very, uh, what should I say? Quizzed or perplexed, confused, doubtful about what Jesus just taught this man. Notice verse 23 of Matthew um, 19. Jesus said to his disciples, I say to you, only with difficulty a rich person can enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, not the way we think of needles today, but the needle that they were talking about is more difficult Right? Or it's easier, I should say, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So when we're looking at that question... We have to see it in light of what Jesus is teaching because Jesus goes on to say this. Truly, I say to you, verse 28, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, I want to just stop here for a second about what is being said in light of this concept of this kingdom lifestyle, right? The first becoming last and the last becoming first. Because if you notice, for those of us who are in our Bible studies that we have at 9 a.m. in the mornings and then on, on Wednesday nights. We just got done through the book of the prophet Daniel. Did anyone pick up on the prophecy that's going back to Daniel? Because that's exactly where he's going back here. 
I'm going to read it again, and I want us to just take a moment because this is what is so important about the gospel message that we have taught right here in Matthew 19. He says again in verse 23 following. Uh, let's see, verse... Actually, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 7 and read Daniel 7 again, there's this picture of one coming like a Son of Man on the clouds, to the ancient of days. And when you read the first part of the vision of Daniel, the picture is, here is the ancient of days who comes and sits on his throne. But if you go a little bit before that, the vision that Daniel has is multiple thrones. Doesn't say how many, just says there's multiple thrones. And this picture then is that here is this throne room scene And one of the thrones sat by the Ancient of Days, another one where the Son of Man comes up and sits on another throne. That's also in Daniel 7. But here Jesus refers back to that passage as the Son of Man, as well as these multiple thrones. And what Jesus says to his disciples, and he expands it beyond his disciples that are right immediately in his presence is this, in that new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The problem with the tribes of Israel and the reason for them going into captivity was because of injustice, right? And so these followers of Jesus who live the way God wants them to live, live in this new uh, world, if you will, this new creation, they're living out the way God had intended them to live as mankind. And as a result of living this way, judge the Israelites who are not living out the will of God. That's the picture that is given here. And what he's telling them is, if you live this lifestyle, whatever this lifestyle that he's been talking about, right? You live this lifestyle and you will sit on thrones as well. But interestingly enough, when he talks about this lifestyle, he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And immediately what should come to our minds, as it should have been with the disciples of Jesus, and anyone hearing the gospel message is, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, become a servant. If you want to be first, Humble yourself to be last. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And the picture of the followers of Jesus is doing things the way Jesus did when he came to show us what it's like to have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And so in this regeneration, as some of your translation would say, you who follow me, you will reign with Christ. You will inherit eternal life. And so if you want to, here's how you do it. Become last. Well, that led to the parable in Matthew 20. And he gives us a picture of what it's like 
to live in this new creation, this new world, if you will. And so he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, chapter 20, verse 1. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's what this new kingdom where righteousness dwells is likened unto. And it's like a man who is a master of a house. He goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard that he has. How does he treat them? Fairly. Comes into agreement. The people that he hires, he's going to give them exactly what is fair as far as what these workers believe to be fair. And then he goes on further in the third hour, finds people still standing around. He says, why are you standing around? Well, we haven't been hired. And well, okay, I'll give you whatever is right. He says it to those on the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour of the day. So instead of 12 hours, some worked only nine hours and some worked only six hours and some worked only three hours. And he says, whatever is right, I will give to you. And then the very last ones that were the 11th hour of the day, Notice verse 6, Matthew 20, verse 6. About the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. It, it's almost sunset. He says, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, because no one hired us. And then he says to them, you go into the vineyard too. I can imagine if I were one of those people on the 11th hour and I get hired and there's only one hour left, I'm thinking, oh, what do I get to support my family with? That'd be one thought. But yet they're desperate. Anything, right? Anything that you may have, something to live on, to have life with. And if it's one-twelfth the wages of what the guy who's worked all day is, then that's fair. I've only been working one hour. Here's the thing, though. When it was time to settle accounts, Jesus makes it very clear, right? He calls the laborers to them in verse 8, right? When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. They received a day's wage. Now, when those, um, those receive, excuse me, let me back up. Verse 10. When those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And they couldn't understand why this was the case. In the current kingdom set up, everything would be fair. They would get more because Jesus gave them, the people only worked a little bit, an entire day's worth of, of wages. Then it seems plausible that we who have worked much more should get more. They didn't agree to it. That's just what they suppose on their end. Interesting. You see, the rich man in the parable the landowner of the vineyard. This rich man had a view of righteousness that is different than the current world. His view, I mean, there's a lot of layers to Matthew 20, right? Theological layers. Um, one of them is when you talk about the covenant and agreement that was made, 
It's likened unto the people of the Old Testament. And the ones that are new that gets grace, they get all this payment and hardly any work. It's grace, they're people under the New Testament. Some would say it was uh, the Jews under the old law that were those who worked harder, did more, maybe prophets, um, just Jews that were higher up. And, and then those sinners and tax collectors, the ones that receive God's grace are the 11th hour people. There's a number of layers to this parable that have been discussed in various commentaries. But the overriding teaching from the vantage point of how to live in the new kingdom is from the perspective of the landowner. And what Jesus wants his disciples to see very clearly, as, as he does for everyone else, that is, is how that landowner lived out what was fair, what was right, and beyond what is fair and right, what is generous. And sometimes we forget that. We forget that someone is in need and they don't deserve whatever they're going to be getting, but they get it nonetheless. And then we go all up in arms that someone was helped out. And we may even go to the point of judging that that person is worthless, doesn't deserve it. We know their whole life story even though we don't know their first, let alone last name. Let that sink in, brethren, because I'm talking about us. That we can judge another person, and we may be right about judging that person. We may have gotten it right, even though we don't know a thing about them personally. And we may get it completely wrong about them, too. Because we don't know them. But when generosity is provided for someone, kind of like what goes on here sometimes. We have people who come and ask from time to time for help. We don't know their situation. We ask them. They could be telling the truth and they could be lying. We don't know. And many of you are so very generous toward them. And we've helped, well, I can tell you just from the use of the benevolence box, let alone your own pockets, for the last what, nine years that we've been here, tens of thousands of dollars have been given to people out of benevolence. A number that we know personally some that we know a little in limited fashion, some we know via someone else, and some that we've not met before until that very time that they've asked for help. This picture of salvation is used in a transaction standpoint because we can understand that. We can understand what's fair, what's right, what's just. And God doesn't always give us what's fair and right and just because if he did, guess what? None of us None of us in this room has any hope. If it's a, a matter of fairness, if it's a matter of justice, not a one of us in this room could say, I've obtained eternal life. And I think sometimes we don't think these things through as it goes past our salvation into how we treat others as we who are the children of God, live in this new kingdom, should be treating people the way God has treated us when we have not deserved what we've been given. I want that to soak in. Because in this picture, when Jesus said it is harder for, and I'm reversing the words, it is harder for a rich man to enter into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, didn't say it's not possible. Because remember what he said earlier? <clears throat> With men, this is impossible. 
But with God, all things are possible. With God and the love and the mercy and the grace that he extends to us undeserving people, he gives us, like those of the 11th hour, a full day's wage, if you will, of salvation. We're all equal from that standpoint. Whether we have been going through from the, the hard life of what it was like as a Jew, if I can use it from that standpoint under the old law, which they needed grace, by the way, every bit as much as we, <laughs> to those who are literally on their deathbed. And however God, and when I use deathbed, I'm using it metaphorically, okay? And I did, did I say literally? Maybe they are literally. <laughs> However God chooses to work through the hearts and lives of individuals that want to come to him, knowing that there's teaching, right, with the gospel, knowing that these are people who are going to put on Christ having died to themselves, right, to raise and walk in newness of life, just that, that picture of baptism that we see, just as commanded by Peter in the day of Pentecost. When you see that picture of individuals who barely give a day's worth of work in their walk with God compared to someone who has been walking with God from just this little childhood age. <clears throat> We're all equal. We're all given through his gracious behavior something by which we can be in the kingdom. So here's what it looks like if I want to get real concrete, real um, applicable in scripture. Here's what it actually looks like. This picture of the parable, the picture of the discussion Jesus has with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Look at this picture. In Philippians chapter 2. Remember the picture where Jesus, uh, the apostle Paul is talking about Jesus Christ. And he says to Christians, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, right? Who did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And notice... And he became obedient all the way to the point of death on the cross. And as a result, was exalted by God. That's verses 5 through 9 paraphrased, right? So when Jesus teaches his disciples to follow after him, and they say, Lord, we have given up everything. We have left everything, and we've come and followed you. Jesus said, and that's why you're going to sit on the thrones and judge Israel. You are the new Israel. You are the new 12 thrones. Because you walk the walk that I'm walking. And as a result, you will have everlasting life. And they go forward and they preach the gospel in Acts chapter 2 and verse 44 following. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, you see the actual actions of Christians who are living life in this new kingdom. And I want to read these passages with you. Go to Acts chapter 2 and verse... 44. Read this with me and then go to Acts 4, the passage that we have on the screen here, and see if we get to see what Jesus was teaching with this parable of the, the man in the vineyard. Acts chapter 2 in the new kingdom, right? The, the church has been established. Notice what takes place. Beginning in verse 42, reading verse 44. They, the Christians, the disciples of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and we came and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things 
in common. Can you imagine that? The rich and the poor. And if I can extrapolate this beyond its immediate context eventually, the Jew and the Gentile, men and women, the free and the slaves, they had all things in common. I am not talking about governmental socialism. I hope you guys see what the difference is. We're talking about Christians who just viewed what they had as, it's not mine. Look at what he goes on to say. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. I know it's very different than the way we live today, right? This is 2019 in USA. Very different than first century Jerusalem. But first century Jerusalem, this is what the inspired word of God is telling us, what Christians were doing. Why? Because in the midst among brethren, in this new community of believers, in this new world, this new creation, if you will, is this picture where some had more than others and others just had it difficult for whatever the contextual reasonings that are not told us. In Acts chapter 4, in very similar fashion, beginning in verse 32, here's what Luke writes. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Sounds just like Acts 2.44. No one said that any of his things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It is like that, that ruler in the vineyard thinking, you know, these people that are here on the last day or the last 11th hour of the day, he could have easily judged them in saying they were lazy, they got up, they got up late, they didn't like the early bird that gets the worm. That's our mantra, right? They didn't get up early, maybe. Maybe they were just lazy and just stayed in bed all day. Maybe, and just all the reasons, but that's not what was said. He says, what are you doing standing here idle? Well, no one hired us. Go. And he gives them generously. Isn't that the life of those who, who have toward those who don't? It's the idea that while I may be first, I live as I'm last. I, I humble myself. I don't come to be served. I come to serve, just as Jesus did. And I think because we live in this culture in the U.S. where we have so much provided for us, everything is a right, right? I mean, if I can just go off topic for just a, just a bit before I finish, Right? I deserve health care. I don't want to get political, but that's the mindset we have. I deserve this. I deserve that. Children deserve, right? I deserve a job because I got a degree. And while that's fair in this world that we live, and it is fair in this world that, that we live that, you know, things are done decently in order from that standpoint, there's something special about people who go over and beyond we think them crazy at times. We think them foolish even. Who generously give. 
to others who don't deserve it. It's an amazing way that Jesus was teaching that we actually see in the lives of those who call themselves disciples or followers of Jesus. And I want that to sink in your hearts. I want it to sink in your hearts when you come across these individuals like the men that we're studying with. And it's not necessarily limited to just finances. It's the way we interact with people in this world. Do we treat them the way that landowner treated the people? The way Jesus taught his disciples? The way the disciples who turn out to be apostles and other followers of Jesus teach us in what we call the New Testament? Because that's the picture of those who have everlasting life. And if you want to know how you obtain it, it's not simply and limited to this picture of hear the word of God, believe that Jesus is the Christ, confess him as the Christ, repent, and in our minds, whatever we limit it to in, in the form of repentance and not the fullness of what repentance would include, right? And putting off the old man and putting on Christ and being baptized into Christ as if, boom, Slam dunk, check mark, I'm in heaven now. It's really a transformed life that takes place. And that, all that is the beginning, if you will, of someone who is being transformed by the renewing of their minds of what it's like to live in this kingdom. Brethren, that's what's explicitly taught in Matthew 19 and 20. And what we see acted out in the Lord's church, as we saw in Acts 2 and verse in chapter 4 as well so let me ask you this what do you need to do to obtain eternal life because if you're keeping the commandments you're actually loving your neighbor that's exactly what that rich man was saying that's what I'm doing that what more do I lack and for a number of us we may still have our gods they need to be put away whether it's the idol of idolatry, going after other gods, whether it's the idol of money, where that becomes a god to us, the idol of immorality, whatever the idol is, it needs to be put away. And we humble ourselves between the, before the one who gives us everlasting life because he is generous toward us. Humbly follow his way. That's the way of God. If you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized into Christ, the whole reason why that, that is commanded by Peter and the apostles in the New Testament scriptures is it is a picture of dying with Christ, raising to walk in newness of life. Just read Romans chapter 6. Read the first four or five verses. But watch how you walk when you come out of that water. It is a life of one who is like that son of man who is able to sit on a throne and judge those in the past who are not living justly, not living righteously. Because that's what you're called to as reflectors of God's image, as the true children of God, as those who would reach out to those who are in this world that also need salvation, who are every bit as undeserving as we have been. And you can reach them by the way you show the love to them, the way God has shown you his love. And brethren, if you're struggling, that's the whole point of us holding each other's hands. That we pray for each other. That we help each other. That's the kingdom life. That's eternal life.
And if that's what you want, the invitation is for you to have that, to have that salvation, eternal life. We've got the song at Calvary. Go ahead and stand up and we'll sing that song as Sawyer leads us. Thank <laughs> you.